Welcome to the Good Energy Project with Lou Connor, a surprisingly hopeful and upbeat show about economics, climate change, and our future on planet Earth. Hello, Lou here, and this is the Good Energy Project. So today is my seventh show, or eighth if you include the little introductory one. Today I want to take the chance to do a little bit of a review of what I've learnt so far on this epic adventure of trying to understand the economic system and how it relates to climate change. Uh, So instead of a guest, I'm joined today by two musical instruments. I've got this one. My thumb piano. And this is one. The shake balls. I've actually made a presentation for you because I think in pictures and I found it easier to make a visual presentation. Obviously, you can't see it on the radio, so I'm going to describe the pictures to you as I go, possibly with the musical instruments. So, the first slide in my presentation is a photo of me taken about four years ago. I'm smiling and leaning forward with my hands clasped under my chin. As if we were in the middle of a conversation, I'm wearing a red wool jumper and have tussocks behind me. Below the photo is a tussock-coloured rectangle containing the words The Good Energy Project, written in black swirly writing, evoking twirling flows of energy, which is a metaphor for the way energy and money flow through the economy. All my life, I've kind of had this feeling that something about the culture or environment around me just doesn't feel quite right. And to give you some context, the next slide is a hand-drawn picture of me and my two brothers sitting on the floor around this old man with a moustache reading a book which is coloured in blue. And there are these twirly blue lines around the book. This is a picture of us attending our philosophy class when I was four. And there we listened to stories from spiritual traditions around the world and heard about the spirit that animates everything and is in everyone. And I really loved this idea and I had this feeling that the world was full of magic. That's the kind of interesting beginning I had to life. And really the shock came when I got to school. This, this picture is another black and white drawing of a slightly cross-eyed lady with gritted teeth, frown lines, mid-length skirt and pearls, and she's ripping a picture in half. And this is depicting my art teacher ripping my painting into, which I was never quite sure why she did, but it seemed like a good metaphor for the shock I got at school. I was really interested in finding connections between the subjects and I wanted to explore and learn, but the culture was extremely competitive and all the subjects were kept separate. This next picture is a drawing of me running from the left of the screen, chasing a carrot, which is orange, and it's hanging from a stick, and I've got my arms outstretched with sweat beads shooting off my face. This is a picture of the way that I felt in the education system, 
racing to cram more information and with this sense of pressure to go fast and achieve more. I went to university and studied physics. And this next picture is a drawing of a physics laboratory in the early 2000s. There's a desktop computer and lots of cords and switches and technical looking stuff. And to the right of the picture is me running out the door, which has a bright green exit sign above it. I studied physics and maths at university partly because I could tell that these subjects had authority in the world and I wanted people to believe me. I really loved the subject physics, but studying it at university was challenging. I was always looking for the life and the human stories behind it, but all the people were left out and it was very dry and technical and something in me began to panic. So this next slide is entitled The Plan. It has a box on the left-hand side with the word science inside, and on the right-hand side it has a box with the word art inside. And the little figure depicting me is crouching down next to the science box with her hands around the box, indicating that she's going to try and pull it towards art. And down the bottom of the picture is the science box and the art box now together and coloured bright green and yellow with celebratory splashes around it and the little figure that's me with my hands on my hips looking pleased with myself. So this was the plan. I wanted to somehow connect science and art. So I took up a career as a science communicator and for the last 15 years that's what I've been doing, um, communicating science and bringing the human stories back to it and sort of trying to connect the rational with the emotional. The next slide is a black and white photo of Roger Douglas, the New Zealand finance minister, who introduced the neoliberal reforms that came to be known as Rogernomics back in the 1980s. A few years ago I learned about Rogernomics and the wide-scale economic policy changes that were introduced at that time. The theories were based on the idea that humans are these competitive individuals that seek to maximise our personal gain and that the market, left to itself, will meet all our needs. Learning about rudgenomics was an epiphany to me because something about it kind of matched the feeling I'd had most of my life at school and at university looking for a job and also my dad's experience of working for a government department. What I realised was that we feel economics. I studied physics because I wanted to understand the world, but in a much more profound way, it's economics that defines the environment we live in, who's rich and who's poor and how we live. Every aspect of our lives is kind of shaped and defined by the system that we live in. And it's also defining really subtle aspects of culture, like how we treat each other and the feeling we have when we wake up in the morning. So this next slide says, we feel economics in big, bold letters. The next slide is a hand-drawn picture of a stereotypical scientist. He's a Caucasian male in a white lab coat with a scruffy beard. He's got pens in the pocket of his lab coat. And on his head is the sort of hat priests wear. His hand is extended upwards towards the sky in a gesture of blessing. He's framed by a gothic-looking arch in a style of a religious painting. And underneath the picture, it says, 
the blessing of the Holy Church of Science. This is a drawing I drew ages ago to depict the kind of authority held by science in our society and the way we look to it for answers and guidance. What I noticed when I began to look at economics is that it's communicated in a really similar way to science. There's lots of graphs and jargon and numbers and technical language. By copying the format of science and the language, economics has achieved this kind of godlike authority. It seems like the laws of economics are written in the fabric of the universe, but they're not. They're made up, and they can be changed, and that's what gives me hope. So this next picture is of a pool table. It's a hand-drawn black-and-white picture. The pool table has wonky legs, so it's sloping towards one corner, and all the balls in the pool table are clustered towards that corner. And this is a metaphor trying to capture the way that the economy defines our experience. The table is sloped so that it's really easy to produce plastic toys or cut down trees, but you have to push the balls uphill to care for the environment or people. So this kind of leads to my overarching question for my project, which is what kind of economic environment will make it easy and enjoyable to care for the planet and people? Do we need to just rebalance the pool table or do we need a whole new structure? What could that look and feel like and how do we get there? My project has three parts or goals and the first one is really to understand and demystify economics. I feel like it's such a bummer that economics is made hard to understand because it makes us feel like we shouldn't or can't know or control it and that's so not true. My second aim is to weave connections. What I've noticed is that there's so many different people and ideas about how and what we need to change, and some of them seem opposed to each other, like I've been looking into degrowth and green growth and there's left and right, and I just want to understand these perspectives and help to find and articulate some common ground. And I'd love an outcome of this project to be that people who haven't connected before are able to connect. And the third thing that I'd love to achieve is to create a space for people to share their vision for the future. I feel like there's so much bad news and confusing negative kind of stuff going on that it's really hard to just clear a space and imagine what could be possible. I'm also hoping that the process will help me to figure out what to do with my own life. I know that I'm one piece in a huge big puzzle. I want to find out how I can help to change our economic system for the better, but also how I can rejig the equation of my own life to have more time and energy for the things I really care about. In this next part of the presentation, I'm going to run through each of the interviews I've done so far and kind of gather and share some of the gems that I've collected. Firstly, I want to share my aha moments. That's what I've learned and how that's changed my thinking. Secondly, I'm going to describe to you the images that came to mind from each of these conversations. Thirdly, I want to share some reflections and questions that have stuck with me and that I'd like to explore more. And fourthly, I want to talk about some practical things that have come out, like actual things you can do in your life or that I've done in my life. So here we go. My first interviewee was my brother, Justin Connor. 
This next slide is a picture of Justin in front of his wool shed at his farm in um, Tehupanui, Greytown. He's got a sort of focused frown on his face, a black and white spotty woolen jumper and a moody sky behind him above the wool shed with its red corrugated iron roof and white weatherboards. Beside the photo are the words Justin Connor, reimagining local food systems. So Justin talked about how food in New Zealand is dominated by a supermarket duopoly. I've tried to draw this. In this picture, there are two blob-like monster kind of creatures with their arms stretched out as if to embrace you. They have bored robot-like faces, and a title at the top reads Supermarket Duopoly. The current food system, Justin points out, produces about 30% of the average industrial nation's carbon emissions. And this is from production of fertilizer, tilling the land, and all the distribution networks. It's also degrading the soil and supplying food that's so expensive many people can't afford it. In the interview, Justin shared his vision for how a new food system could work. It centers around the veggie vagabonds, who are some friends of his that have a regenerative vegetable farm at his land in Greytown. Justin told us about their dream of a food system where small-scale local farms feed the world. Their kind of regenerative farming uses virtually no fossil fuels. It restores the soil, and the veggies are cheaper than produce from supermarkets. They use a system called CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, where people actually invest in the farmers and pay for them to live and do their work in return for a weekly supply of veggies. It's a completely different economic system that builds trust and community alongside the food. The problem is that these small-scale regenerative veggie gardens take a bit of capital to get up and running, and it can be hard for a group of individual farmers to establish themselves while trying to make a living. Justin helped the veggie vagabonds get started by providing secure tenure on his property. They've worked incredibly hard and against all odds and with lots of support from friends to like dig all the rocks out of the ground and to establish their gardens. Their vision, along with Justin, is to have a whole network of these kind of small-scale regenerative farms. This next slide is of a cross-section of a piece of moist, dark soil with white spidery fibres threaded through it. Emerging from the surface are a variety of different mushrooms. It's a mycelial network. So a friend of Justin's asked him this question. What's the mycelial network that's required to enable more of these kind of food producers yeah. to, um, to like pop up? And this question really got Justin thinking. And from that, he's developed a proposal to pilot a bunch of things that could help regenerative farms like the veggie vagabonds to get started and to start working together. It involves four things. Uh, the first is a land trust, so farmers need secure access to land. And the second thing is some kind of fund or pool of money that will give them what they need to get started. And along with this, Justin imagines some kind of mentoring, like business mentoring. The third thing is a cooperative. He asked the vagabonds what would be the next thing to make their operation more efficient so they could 
make a little bit more money so they can take holidays and just have a nicer way of life because they work so hard. And what they said is that if they could have a cooperative with other farmers, they could come together to buy things and they could also work together to provide the veggie boxes for customers so they could specialise in different vegetables and it would just take it that next level of efficiency. And the fourth thing which I found perhaps most interesting and mysterious was a cultural change. It's something to do with this different way of thinking. You shift from this competitive paradigm into this sort of cooperative one. It's the new way of thinking that looks at our planet as a closed system, not as a source of endless growth. Within the capitalist paradigm, where things are only recognised as valuable if you can trade them, if they can be given a monetary value. What I'm noticing, what I've noticed over the last 20 years or so, is problems like climate change and water quality have become so in our faces that the system's been forced to actually try and value them and therefore mm. put a monetary value on these things. Mm. And so you get carbon trading schemes, emission trading schemes. It's trying to sort of force the capitalist system to value things in, in mm. the way that it understands how to value things, mm. which is a monetary value. My sense is that if you try and do that, what you risk is that people will try and achieve the, the monetary outcome by doing the very least. You hear of tick box exercises, mm, and it mm. all becomes, it, it all just feels clunky because it's because you've got the spirit of the system is moving in one direction and all of this is kind of moving perpendicular to it. Whereas Vagabond Veg, they would just never even dream of putting like artificial fertilizers on mm. the farm. They just wouldn't. Even if it came, you know, really hard times, they'd, they'd prefer to basically chuck it in than do that to the soil. Because they're invested in the spirit of this sort of regenerative paradigm, mm. that's where they come from when problems come up. They don't come from this maximising private wealth kind of place. They come from how can we look after the whole. Justin asked a poignant question. Where's the place where you go to commune around and learn from each other and talk about not just the practices, but the principles underneath those? Where do we go to evolve and practice and learn about this new culture. What's the context for that? I think for a long time, like church was a similar context. Like, so what's the what's the equivalent? I don't know what the answer is to that. I'm quite, <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, quite, yeah. quite curious. We can be created to uh, turn the woolshed into some kind of regeneration church. Um, <laughs> the path he and the vagabonds have discovered to learn about this new culture and practice is through something called Huapara Kore which is like a Māori organic system, but it works in a totally different way. As opposed to a standard or a certification process, mm. with certifications, an expert will come to your farm and check that you've done a whole bunch of things correctly, and then if you have, you get your certificate and they go away again. Whereas the verification process is one where your peers come to your farm okay. on a semi-regular basis. And you go, for a, you go for a walk and you show them what's going on and you talk about it. And then they ask questions and they say, well, what's happening over there? And all of that is based on a set of principles which relate to Atua. Mm. So it's founded in Māori spirituality. Those principles then come through into practical application, but not in a way that is rigid. Mm. There's a huge amount of freedom to think about what they mean mm. in, in your place. And personally, I find every time I'm in the company of those people, 
these peers and in the conversation, in the wānau, I feel deepened and uplifted. I feel mm. inspired and also grounded mm. and encouraged, but in a mm. very deep way. I've been stoked that Justin's interview seems to have helped him make more connections. He's got a couple of people interested in supporting his pilot project, and he's connected with a couple of other interviewees who have offered to mentor and support him in his vision. In terms of further questions and reflections, I feel like this interview scratched the surface of a new paradigm of economic systems. That's sort of not the private sector and it's not government, but it's the commons. It raises questions for me around different models of doing business. What difference does the business structure make to a group's ability to respond to the needs of people and the planet? This next slide has a picture of my second interviewee, Susan Krimdike. It's a black and white photo of her, taken on a jaunty angle to the left of the screen. She has long hair falling over her shoulders, and she looks excited about something. Her eyes are shining. On the right, it says, Susan Krimdike, Transition Engineering. Susan is an engineer and an expert in energy. She's worked in almost every kind of alternative energy field there is. And she's come to the conclusion that ultimately we need to use less energy and that the amount of fossil fuels it would take to replace fossil fuels with other sources makes it technically impossible. Susan has spent a big chunk of her career at Canterbury University. She co-founded the field of transition engineering, which she refers to as a corrective trans discipline. Its focus is to train engineers to meet the challenge of climate change and to engineer systems that reduce our carbon usage and could safeguard future generations. There have been points in human history where engineers have taken a stand, when they've realised that the systems they were designing were working okay, but they had some terrible and unintended consequences, like boilers blowing up and killing hundreds of workers. In these cases, the engineers took it on themselves to solve the problem. They didn't go to the government or to the industry leaders. They got together and discussed what needed to be done to make the engineered systems more safe. And thus, safety engineering came to be. The next slide is of the Titanic under a night sky, blue and moody, heading towards a ghostly iceberg looming out of the sea. The, the Titanic metaphor should probably be one of our core stories at the moment because the Titanic is a big technological enterprise. It was luxurious. It was comfortable. It was fast. It was the height of money making, giving people a great service. And yet it was heading straight for an iceberg. She uses this analogy to explain where we're at in our human endeavor on Earth. The captain is like the prime minister, the navigators are like the economists, the owners are like the corporations, and in the belly of the ship, shoveling coal, are the engineers. So the point of the story, how we get to transition engineering, is that this is an engineered system. It is going to fail because it's going to be driven beyond its breaking point. And the reason it's going to fail is because it's working exactly the way it was supposed to. <laughs> It's going full steam. Mm. And there are people shoveling the coal into the boilers, which are driving the steam engines, which work perfectly well. And there's only 52 of them. 
So if we go all the way down to the bottom of the ship and we could talk to those 52 people, if we could even convince 20% of them to slow down, to stop shoveling, that would depower the system enough that they would probably have time to avoid the iceberg. Think about that. 3,000 people on this ship, 1,500 of them are going to die. Mm. And 15 people could save them mm-hmm. by changing their perspective, changing what they're doing, and not hurting anybody. <laughs> That's why I think transition engineering is, is from within the bowels of this machine, mm. knowing how it works is so important. If you don't understand the thermodynamics and what the energy is doing, And if you don't understand how to power down safely, if you convince yourself that the inconvenience that these first class passengers might experience if their arrival is four hours late and they have to wait for their porters to come take their luggage, that that just doesn't matter. (laughs) So Susan's mission is to get at least 20% of engineers worldwide signed up and trained to be transition engineers. That's how much it should take, she thinks, to get a movement started. And she believes engineers can take the lead on this. Susan is fascinated by anthropology and she took us on an epic journey through history. Millennia shrunk to minutes as we scanned the human experience on Earth. The next slide is a hand-drawn picture of a stick figure with a blindfold and their hands outstretched in front staggering towards the right-hand side of the screen. Above them are the words, future blind. For all of our amazing technology and science, we are as future illiterate as any Mm. humans have ever been. For the very long experiment of human civilization, change has been pretty slow. And now we've had a boom. We've we've changed things like crazy. but we're still future blind. We're actually cutting off our future. Surely, (laughs) of all the things we've done in our 100,000 years, surely it is time now for us to evolve to being able to understand the future, to engage with the future, to treat people in the future as if they have rights, as as if we have responsibilities to them, and to correct our behaviors, our wants, needs, and desires, because we are not entitled to destroy their world. Susan's challenge is at once simple and world-shifting. She's challenging us to grow up. We need to mature a bit, that that sort of idea of evolution. When I look at the economic models that we use and the sort of rationalizations of really not acceptable things, well you know, you have to return the profit to shareholders and therefore you have to do this. That to me sounds immature. Mm-hmm. That sounds like the argument that, that you know, maybe a, maybe a 13-year-old would make. <laughs> <laughs> I shared with Susan my analogy of the economy as a wonky pool table and asked her what she thought needed changing. This was her response. Because I've studied anthropology, I'm pretty sure that the thing we call the economy, the market, it's a human construct. It's a belief-based system. It's not a science-based system. It's not a fact-based system. People have always had this system by which they try to gauge 
their chances of success, right? So if you make the sacrifices to Odin, you take your best sword and you break it, then you'll have success in the future, right? Mm-hmm. Seriously? Could we could we do experiments and see if that's actually true? <laughs> <laughs> well, think about that. There are no experiments on this thing we call the economy. We just believe it. And don't be surprised that you get talked into believing stuff because we always have. The world is too complex. We need belief systems so that we can all say the same thing and go, oh, okay. (laughs) What I can tell from history is that those belief systems don't change. They fade. They're replaced by a better one. So don't waste any time on the old one, on trying to figure out what's wrong with it. It's just wrong. Sometimes we're just wrong. (laughs) Throwing virgins into the volcano doesn't actually guarantee a good harvest. (laughs) What it looks like in practice is that you give good thinking time to scientific principles, use data as much as possible, and construct the way you think the world works based on that. This next picture is a diagram of an economic system built on science. At the bottom, it has a rectangle with the label science, and on top of that is another rectangle with the label engineering. And on the very top is a smaller rectangle again that says economics. The key idea I picked up from Susan is that our modern industrial society is a massive and complex engineered system. Most people don't know how it works. Economists don't know how it works. But engineers do. And we need to know how it works to change its course to save future generations. Susan says the economy is a construct, one that we can choose to believe or not. And yet something irks me about this idea that we can believe in our economic system or not. We're also trapped by it in a very real way. We don't have a choice whether we pay our taxes or whether we get a job or whether we can afford something. This slide is a hand-drawn illustration of a figure tied up in ropes and looking uncomfortable with a kind of confused look on their face. Next to them is a sign that says, don't worry, the ropes are just imaginary. I have a desire to learn about the system that we're in because I feel trapped by it and because I see it causing so much pain and harm. It was this sense of wanting to understand what was really controlling our world that led me to the next interview and to the topic of money. This next slide is a photo of Barry Coates and I in the Wellington Access Radio studio. We're both smiling and looking at the camera. Around us, I've drawn lots of little colourful dollar signs to illustrate the topic of the interview. And to the right are the words Barry Coates, wielding the power of money for good. Barry and I started by talking about the way we relate to money, how it's a taboo, something that's rude to talk about. Also this idea that money is sort of bad, the root of all evil, and the opposite to good values. And yet, it's money that controls and directs so much of what happens in the world. I heard someone say that if a whale is worth more dead on the market than it is in the sea, someone will eventually kill it, 
so many people I know working for charities or trying to get environmental programs going struggle with funding. This slide is a very bad attempt at capturing an idea Barry and I talked about. It shows a cross-section of an underground scene with all these little channels and hidden networks with people underneath the ground switching levers that control the flow of water through these channels. And then at the top of the screen are people walking on top of the ground, not knowing what's happening underneath them. And there are fountains popping up in some places, and in other places there are deserts. Barry runs a charity called Mindful Money, and their aim is to make this hidden world of money visible so that we can start to choose how it flows. He makes the point that many of us don't even think about what our money is doing. Looking big picture, I think what's happened is we've given over this control of our money far too easily to the corporations who don't think about the impact of it and don't really care about mm. where the money goes. It's kind of like when you work out your carbon footprint and maybe you don't travel so much, you take the bus or you mm. cycle, mm. walk, and maybe you don't eat meat anymore. Mm. All of that's great, but actually there's carbon footprint from your money as well. And so that's a way you can also reduce your footprint and act as an individual. Mindful Money has a website where you can go and find out what your KiwiSaver fund invests in. Apparently 3.2 million people in New Zealand have a KiwiSaver fund. I asked Olive, my friend, who also works for Barry, to guide me through the process of switching my own KiwiSaver fund to something more ethical. And it's brought up a, a little graph that shows me what I'm actually invested in. Mm. Alcohol, 1.3%. Animal cruelty, 4.18%. Fossil fuels, 3.27%. Gambling, 0.52%. Human rights violations, 2.43%. And weapons, 0.3%. You kind of, you've got them all there. <laughs> yeah, a selection of these terrible things that I'm putting my money into. It was super easy to change. It just took around 20 minutes. Ridiculously easy. And now I'm with a fund that does their best to keep their funds ethical. But why are our national retirement funds investing in all this stuff? I think a lot of it is finance theory, all about efficient markets. The best way to invest is just to invest across the market. doesn't really matter what you invest in, and that's a good way to earn a return at low risk. And, you know, there's quite a few things wrong with that. For one thing, markets aren't efficient. And for another thing, you end up investing in stuff that, that people feel is inconsistent with their values. And so the whole sort of finance theory has not understood that investment has consequences. That mm. in, what you invest in gets done. That's what gets prioritised. So mm. if you're investing your money into companies that produce nuclear weapons then ultimately you're supporting that industry. And in a number of areas, like nuclear weapons, like fossil fuels, there's a big push now to make sure that people don't invest in yeah. those kind of sectors. And we in New Zealand can be part of that. Yeah, There's international movements, and when we act as part of that international mm. movement, it's really powerful because at a global level, 
then we can deny money to those companies and that then makes it much harder for them to do business. This slide is of lots of tiny trickles of water running together to form a raging river. At this stage, Barry and his team are working with fund managers and investment companies. They generally invest in listed companies on the stock market. Barry's big vision is to get flows of money into the grassroots projects that could ultimately change the nature of our economy in a profound way. I would love to see in New Zealand, for example, people being able to invest their money in local positive impact activity, like mm -hmm. community development schemes, food systems, mm -hmm. community gardening, community housing. A whole lot of things where, at the moment, if they want to get money, they have to raise it from friends and family or individuals because generally they can't get any money from the bank. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't it be nice to have a flow of money from people who say, yeah, I care about those things, um, I want to help yeah. them. I don't mind if it's not the highest return. I just want to have my money used for good. And so that's a vision that I see on all of the kind of initiatives that can change things in New Zealand from the bottom up. And the other one is just ways to hold these corporations to account. And so there's also a sort of plan that Mindful Money would put companies under some pressure through their shareholding and through their annual general meetings and shareholder resolutions in order for companies to have to take climate change on board or to do more on sustainability, etc. I think we need more of that in New Zealand. I went away from this interview feeling inspired. Before talking to Barry, I had assumed that ethical investment couldn't fundamentally change our economic system because it's operating within the system. But by the end, I'd changed my mind. Everything that needs doing to change the economy needs money to do it. So we have to engage with where the money is at the moment in order to shift those flows. The image I'm left with is the small but powerful choice we have as individuals to direct our money. I asked Barry what he thought of degrowth and how business fits into and that. I, and I sort of get it that overall our footprint and our impact on ecological systems is going to have to become much lighter. And a lot of that is consumption-based. We keep on kind of consuming stuff as if it's going to make us happy, and it never does. <laughs> so from that perspective, I get degrowth. But then when you unpack it a bit, then... In some areas, I think there probably has to be a bit more regrowth, like social housing. I want more social housing, mm, not less. Mm. On regenerative agriculture, I want more native restoration in New Zealand, not yeah. less. I want less pine trees, you know, but mm. I want more native forests. For me, it's much more around not the overall kind of meta-analysis of degrowth, but saying we really need to switch around this growth towards quality and not quantity. Now for an interlude with some shake balls. My next guest was Tur Boren. He's the chairman of the Quattro Trust who is employing me to do this project. He's spent his career helping businesses on the brink of failure to survive. He also has an Olympic gold medal in hockey, which is something he likes to keep secret, but that I always tell people about because I think it's relevant to his experience and character. His approach to life is very much a team sport. In the slide here, he's pictured sitting on a couch with his little grandson, Rico, who's looking very cute and excited about something. 
and Tu is wearing a sort of cape or robe of a grey colour. It's the morning, apparently. It feels apt that this interview followed the one with Barry, because we were able to focus into the world of business and ask the question of what a company is and what makes a good one and what makes a bad one. Tu describes a company as a community of people trying to achieve something together, not too unlike a sports team trying to win. In our conversation, he described the qualities of a good company, taking responsibility, looking after people and sharing the value it creates. Compared to a bad company, where everyone is looking after their own interests and money rules. He celebrates the qualities that good companies foster of ingenuity, hard work and pride. And he suggests we encourage good companies, just like we do sports teams. In the same way that we encourage and spend a lot of time watching good sports teams, you know, we should applaud good companies. And what we should do is try and eliminate the spoilers out there. Try and reduce their impact. Tur became an expert in working with companies who are on the brink of failure, often trying to implement new ideas but not succeeding yet. The first step was to get everyone on the same page about what was at stake. You say to all the parties involved, if we let this fail, that's going to be very disadvantageous for everyone. Mm. And it's expensive. But if you all contribute a little bit... Mm. then maybe we'll have the time and space to make this work, not by asking other people how to go about it, but by asking the management and staff of the company that we've got. And if you can negotiate everybody chipping a bit and give the company what you might call a second chance and then get into this recovery phase, a lot of value is created. Or mm. If not a lot of value being created, a, a lot of loss has been avoided. Yeah. And so everybody can be better off than just giving up. The recovery period is an enormously exciting period in the life cycle of many companies. Mm. It creates an enormous amount of pride. It's hard work, but you find yourself a part of very close relationships. Mm. The recovery phase produces trust and respect and nothing but exciting things. Mm. And you form the best relationships in that process of, of recovery, so I fell in love with that. The secret to overcoming these near-death experiences was often to get smaller and fairer, cut unnecessary costs, focus on core business, value relationships, share the load across the company and lower expectations till the business was back on track. It was hugely satisfying when it worked, and it often did. Now that he's retired, Tur has turned his attention to the macro scale and the relationship between our economic system and climate change. He sees a strong parallel between the plight of humanity and that of a failing company. I asked Tur what he thought about degrowth and whether it's possible to have successful business if the economy shrinks. His response was very much in line with Barry's. Imagine that we became smaller at the rate of 2 or 3% per annum. Amongst that 2 or 3%, there'll be lots of growth and even more degrowth. <laughs> but there'll still be lots of good things happening. And we should always encourage good things happening. A community of people who achieve a lot should not be tainted by the fact that there's also 
quite a few bad companies. <laughs> Let's try and eliminate the bad <laughs> and support the good. Mm. And that might sound a little bit general, and, and I don't know either how to do it. We've got to get together on it. But degrowth does not spell the end of individual communities being successful, and that's where your hope has to be. The challenge is the business community, along with wealthy nations, to take responsibility for climate change. As the third world countries are becoming slightly more enriched, they're taking quite a lot of the blame of the additional emissions, but this is nonsense. It's Europe and the United States who had a major high energy, New Zealand too, mm. we're high energy per capita users and we should take a lot of the responsibility. Mm. Colonisation was all about extracting value from distant countries yeah. and it's no time to reverse that and say, yeah. if you're a high energy user, mm. then put your hand up and start paying. In terms of aha moments from talking to Tur, I went away with the sense of what it means to hit hard times as a community. The picture I have is of a collection of people being hit by the full impact of a storm. The storm is represented by swirly lines that are blowing people's hair and pulling them apart. And the people are all scattered around the page. The next picture is the same storm but in the middle of the page is a box in which all the people can shelter together amidst the chaos of the world so that they can figure out solutions. His vision is to pass power on to younger generations. I don't think we can look to old people to solve our problems. Um, mm. We need young people to solve our problems. Maybe you can tolerate one or two <laughs> old people, but not too many. And you mustn't give them a lot of power. Old people do not do well with power, is an observation that is kind of inescapable when, when you look around. In terms of practical things, talking to Tur made me reflect on teams and how important they are when you've got difficult stuff to tackle. And it makes me wonder, how do we establish good teams? And how do we make sure that everyone's on a team? And that feels like a profound question that leads on to the next interviewee. That's Brian Innes. The illustration I have here is of Brian wearing a beret and glasses and with a moustache in a swimming pool. He's got a life ring around him. He's smiling gleefully and enjoying himself. Around him in the water are colourful dollar symbols, which is a visual metaphor for the topic of the interview, savings pools, which is a system that Brian devised to enable groups of people to share their savings and act a bit like a small community bank, making loans to each other. He's part of an organisation called Living Economies, a group of volunteers who are committed to the aims of decolonising our economy and money systems and supporting the localization of food systems, energy systems, and economies. They do all this by researching and promoting things like alternative currencies, time banking, co-housing and cooperative living structures, and no-interest community finance. It's a very grassroots organization. Brian described how when he was a young man, he got a mortgage on a farm for his family. When the 1987 crash came, the interest rates went up to 22% and they struggled to pay and eventually had to sell the farm. And the experience of being beholden to the bank 
losing his power and being mucked around, put him off debt for life. Brian is steeped in knowledge of the history of money and currencies, and he explained to me how the practice of charging interest on a loan used to be considered a sin. It was called usury in the Bible. He described to me how he sees the banking system actually generating the phenomenon of continuous economic growth by charging interest on loans, and how this puts increasing pressure on people to continuously increase productivity. This means more resources and more energy. He also pointed out how most of New Zealand's banks are owned overseas, so when we keep our money there and pay interest in our mortgages, the money actually hemorrhages overseas. And he describes this as a bit of a vestige of colonisation, extracting value from communities and sending it away. Brian and his wife practice and teach permaculture, and I got the impression that everything he was saying about economics was coming from this point of view. Permaculture is a method of gardening, but it's also a philosophy on life, which is all about working with rather than against nature. Brian has a kind of organic view of economics. I like the image of economies as natural exchange mechanisms within and between organisms. If they're working well, economies build trust, connection and relationships at a local level, as well as facilitating long-distance exchange. These exchanges weave the fabric of society. I'm thinking again of those mycelium networks that Justin talked about. Savings pools are a way people can take back power and share resources with each other. People use them to get out of debt, to buy houses, start businesses, get over relationship breakups and all sorts. What struck me also about savings pools is that they're just as much about building community as they are a finance solution. They bring money out of that hidden taboo realm and make it a source of connection and mutual support. Brian said that if he could achieve anything in his life, it would be to persuade people of the benefits of cooperation. I can see us at this point in evolution where our challenge is to learn to organise and get stuff done as groups of people. We used to do this when we lived in villages, but it feels like we've lost that ability because we're connected with these large-scale systems through the market to survive. In terms of new connections, I was stoked to introduce Justin to Brian and to hear that they hit it off. Justin and the Veggie Vagabonds are now exploring the idea of setting up a savings pool which could act as that fund to support veggie growers to start new regenerative farms. They may also be able to build an app to make savings pools more accessible to more people and easier to run. And Brian is mentoring Justin as he attempts to set up a land trust for regenerative farming. That feels really cool to make those new connections. In terms of questions and reflections, I'm left pondering the relationship between these local initiatives and the national and global economies we're all part of. I find it extremely appealing, this idea of a time-rich and abundant lifestyle the idea that it's possible to have economic systems that nurture trust in relationships and that are gentle and responsive to people in the earth. It still feels far away to me, but I've caught a whiff of it and I really like it. My next interviewee is Helen Dew. Helen Dew is 85 years old 
and she's famous in her hometown of Carterton for her outspoken views on climate change and sustainability and her passion for local currencies. Helen is part of the Living Economies and was a co-founder of that organisation, so she actually introduced me to Brian. In this picture, you'll see her standing proudly by her winter veggie garden. She's a short, friendly-looking lady with white hair and a grey woolen jumper and black trousers. Below her is a very healthy-looking cauliflower and some spring onions. Helen has made it one of her life goals to inform people about the perils of interest-bearing debt. Like Brian, she saw the practice of banks charging interest as the key fault in our economic system. This next slide is a picture of a bunch of people holding up very large rocks on their back and looking kind of strained. Over to the right-hand side, two people have unfortunately been crushed. That picture is my illustration of the feeling of interest-bearing debt and the pressure that it puts us under. I liken the system to cancer, really, because... It is like a system that grows and grows and grows and eventually is out of control and collapses. Helen is passionate about complementary currencies, which are payment systems created by communities that run alongside the national currency. They allow communities to create value and make exchanges that don't involve money. Helen's vision is to have a complementary currency that operates from business to business she gave an example of one in Switzerland called VIR, or W-I-R, which turns over millions of dollars. Rather than leaking money to overseas banks, a local currency like this would keep value circulating in the local economy and encourage local buying and exchange. It would also give local communities the power to create opportunities by facilitating the release of untapped skills and resources. As I was listening to Helen, an image came to mind of a local economy being like a water cycle with an attachment, with savings pools as reservoirs and local currencies as channels distributing value across the catchment. The contrasting image is of our current global economy, where our money flows overseas and we are tapped into national and global pipes to receive the sustenance we need to live. When I asked her what she would be most proud of when she was looking back at her life, this is what she said. I think the connections I've made in my life stand out for me. I've met a lot of people. I've enjoyed meeting so many people. And when I'm walking uptown, for instance, people will greet me by name. <laughs> and very often I haven't got a clue who they are <laughs> yeah. because you can't remember everybody. <laughs> yeah. In terms of practical takeaways from this interview... I think it was a whole way of thinking that I came away with. It's asking, can I do without this thing I'm going to buy? Do I need something new or could I fix it or could I exchange it or could I buy locally? Could I grow my own veggies and share them or join a time bank or join a savings pool? So I think at the heart of it, she was encouraging me to consume less and form more connections. So those were my six interviews so far. At the end of that process, I feel like there are some common images and common themes that are coming up again and again. One of them is hidden networks. I'm thinking of the mycelial networks 
under the ground that Justin talked about and the networks of streams and channels where money flows that Barry talked about. And I'm also thinking about the layers of economic ideas. At the surface, there are the systems and practices, but underneath that, there are different ideas and concepts of what it means to be human. And I'm interested in that philosophical or almost spiritual level of economies. A map is beginning to form of different approaches to economic system change. On one side, there's engaging with the structures that exist already. And on the other side, there's new structures that come from a very different idea about life and what it means to be human, that we're essentially interconnected and not individuals. One thing I've reflected on after doing six interviews was that four of my interviewees were men and mostly quite old and all white and t only two were women. Even though I've learnt so much from these guests so far and they've been wonderful conversations, I'm really keen to find more young and diverse people to talk to. I'd love to learn about Māori economies and to explore these issues through an Indigenous lens. I'm also keen to understand the role of the government in shaping the economy and what we can do about encouraging those changes. I'm so grateful for these conversations and to have the time and space to follow these questions. I really want to take this moment to thank Tur and also Marceline and Mitzi for holding that space for me and also my friends who are my co-explorers. I'm also so grateful to Wellington Access Radio and especially Pip, Johnny, Tony and Sam who have guided me through the process of producing this show and they've been so amazingly encouraging. If you would like to subscribe to get regular updates from the Good Energy Project, you can go to thegoodenergyproject.substack.com and you can also find these podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So that's it for this week and I'll be doing another interview soon so I really look forward to joining you again shortly. Hakite. Hakite.